Today we have the privilege of focusing on one of the great verses of the New Testament, 2 Corinthians 4, 7, which says, we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. There are songs written with these words, there are posters that you can find plaques to put on your wall. There's even a singing group that was named Jars of Clay. And so it's a familiar um, expression for us. But we have this treasure in Jars of Clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. So what is this treasure that Paul refers to here? It's what he was referring to in the verse before. The light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ Jesus. So this, which is what we talked about. It's the truth of Christ. It's the light of Christ. It's the knowledge of Christ. It's Christ. That's the treasure. And we have this treasure. This verse is telling us, you know, the, verse 6 said, we have this treasure. Verse 7 says, but we have this treasure in veils of and jars of clay. Now, let's talk about jars of clay or clay pots or earthen vessels or whatever you're going to call it. It's, you can use different words, but it's clear what it's talking about. It's talking about a container that is made of, of clay, made of dirt. That's a common vessel, not a fancy thing that you put on your, on your uh, you know, mantle to decorate, but it's a, just a common container that you use for ordinary things. And when we hear that we are clay pots, because of course when it says we have this treasure in jars of clay, it's referring to us. We think of the fact that God, when he created mankind, he created us out of clay, out of the dirt. And we think of all those verses in the Bible which talk about how God is the potter and we are the clay. Scholars tell us that the distinctives of a clay vessel in the first century were that they were fragile, easily broken, and uh, if, if you, you know, in this field of archaeology, uh, we have about a hundred times more shards of pots than we have anything else we've ever found. They're fragile, they're inferior, quickly made, cheaply purchased, and they are expendable. So they're, you know, they didn't have things that were um, you know, you just use once and throw them in the trash like we do, but they're the closest thing they had to that. They knew that they weren't going to last for your lifetime. And so in this verse, Paul says that we are mere jars of clay which contain the treasure of Christ and his gospel of grace. Now, this image here is designed to be counterintuitive. 
Ordinarily, a treasure would be kept in a sturdy and elegant container. Something which matches the treasure in some way. You know, when we have a valuable painting that we want to hang in our house, we buy a nice frame to go around that painting. We don't just tack it up with thumbtacks. I'm glad the little ones are gone so that they know that just because it's up in thumbtacks, (laughs) you know, that doesn't... Anyway, Um, when we have nice china... We want a nice china cabinet to store it in. We don't keep our silver, if we have silver, in a tin can, but in an elegant box or chest. And we don't use a grocery bag to store our fine jewelry. But we get a nice-looking jewelry box and put them in there. But not in this verse. Not so with the Lord and with us. He doesn't place the treasure of his son into a golden palace or dress him in royal robes. And when it comes to the people in whom he dwells, he doesn't look for the elite, the beautiful, the ones that that look like they're really something. He places them in Ordinary vessels of clay. Jesus said in Matthew 11, I thank you, Lord, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. And Paul says, Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human might boast in the presence of God. So God has ordained that the precious treasure of his Son and his Spirit be contained in feeble, dying, breakable pots made of dirt and subject to pain and death like all of us. Now, this says so much about so many things. I'm going to go through a number of them. I have it down to I. I don't know how many that is. But it's, uh, you can guess or count them yourself. First of all, this says a lot about Christ. It says that he is our treasure. You know, it reminds us of the treasure that uh, it was in the parable of the hidden treasure in Matthew 1344 where Jesus said the kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field which a man found and covered up and then in his joy he goes and sells all he has and buys that field so again the, the, uh, the treasure there's a treasure Christ is our treasure 
But one thing about a treasure is just because something's a treasure doesn't mean that everybody treasures it. How many people have we seen, how many men have we seen, for instance, who have wonderful godly wives but don't appreciate what treasures they have? You know, you have a woman who prays for her husband, who thinks the best of him, who, who uh, makes the most of the situation in the home, who looks to help him and encourage him, and yet he, he fails to appreciate. He fails to recognize what he has and, uh, and what a tragedy that is. So in the same way, it's possible to have a, a treasure and not appreciate that treasure, not treasure that treasure. And so it is true with Christ that even though he is our treasure, that doesn't mean we treasure him necessarily. And we have to remember to treasure him. We have to pray that God would open our eyes to what a treasure he is so that we might cherish him and hold, cling to him. Jesus himself said, don't lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroy and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Christ wants us to treasure the things that are worth treasuring and there's nothing worth treasuring more than treasuring him. This verse also says a lot about the gospel. You know, the, the Bible um, gives us, in the New Testament, gives us, and even in the Old, gives us many images that are little pictures about what the gospel is. So here we have one. It's a clay pot with a treasure inside. That's the gospel. <clears throat> it, the gospel says, this verse tells us, the gospel says that the treasure of God resides in human hearts, in broken, earthly human hearts. <clears throat> it tells us that we are clay pots, that we don't deserve to contain a treasure. But yet God gives us his treasure by grace. It's not because of who we are that we possess the treasure. It's in spite of the fact that we're just ordinary clay pots. It tells us that all people are clay pots. But of course, not all people know that they are clay pots. Excuse me. Some people think that they are exquisite vases or ornate jewelry boxes that are above everyone else. I sent out yesterday on Facebook that the fact is that the expression holier than thou comes from a verse in uh, Isaiah 65. And, uh, And so some are holier than thou. Some think that they're above everyone else. But then there are others who think that they are just disgusting, discarded toilet bowls, not worthy to possess any treasure. But the gospel says we are clay pots 
fashioned by God, not worthy to possess God's treasure, but by God's grace, able to possess God's treasure. So the most important thing about us is not our belief system, it's not our lifestyle, though those are not unimportant. The most important thing about us is that we have Christ. So this also tells us a lot about the church. This verse. You have this group of people who meet together on Sundays and each week they sing songs and they read the Bible and they pray. They shake hands with each other and they usually sit in the same seats every week. And the same guy usually gets up and talks. Each week is pretty much the same. Just a little old church, nothing very impressive. And yet, the church contains a treasure. That's what makes the church something special. It's not because it's so great in itself, it's because of the treasure that, contain, that is contained in it. Ephesians 3, 9, and 10 talk about the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things so that through the church the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. Now, that's lofty, exalted language that's hard for us to get our minds around. But the point is, God is revealing his manifold wisdom, not just to the people on the earth, but to the powers, the spiritual powers, both both of light and of darkness. And how is he doing it? Through the church. Through broken clay pots. They contain his treasure. I don't mean broken, I mean breakable. This also says a lot about church leaders. We want church leaders to be more than just people like us. We want them to be brilliant and funny and godly and have it all together. We don't want them to struggle, we don't want them to be ordinary. We don't want them to be just like us. And that's why churches so easily veer in the direction of priesthood. Where people have this exalted view of their leader. And the leader enjoys being thought of in this way. But the fact is, leaders like everybody else are clay pots. And they hold the treasure of Christ. And that's just like the rest of God's people. In the New Testament, in the church, there's only one priest, and that's Jesus Christ. This verse tells us a lot about preaching, I think. Here's, you know, just a person that gets up front and tells others what God says in his word. It's understandable that in many places, 
People are more and more using multimedia presentations and dramatizations. Preaching is so ordinary, so unspectacular. This was even the complaint about Paul from the very Corinthians that he writes this letter to. He says in 1 Corinthians 2, When I came to you, brothers, I did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom. For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling. Paul wasn't an eloquent speaker. He just got up and he told them about Christ. He was just a clay pot who was possessing and proclaiming a great treasure. The thing that makes preaching work is Christ's power through our weakness. For a long time I tried to prepare sermons as if the sermon was going to be the mighty power in people's lives. And God showed me that that's just the wrong way to think. That's all about me. Now I try to prepare faithful sermons. I still do the work of preparing the sermon, but I cry out to the Lord that by His mighty power, He would work through my weakness and make it effective in the lives of people. This verse also tells us something about the Bible. You know, the Bible is just a book. Right now, there's nothing more ordinary, nothing more boring in people's minds than a book. Especially an old book. It's not a movie, it's not a video game, it's not a music video. It's not a big show. It's just a very old book. And books that are thousands of years old aren't very popular today. Have you noticed that? How many do you have in your library besides the Bible? And the books that do get read, they're the new books. Even if a book's 15 years old, you know, you can buy it for a dollar at the used bookstore. Very old books are very unpopular. Just think about the, you know, we're going through 2 Corinthians. We're, we're spending months, maybe even years, reading every sentence of a letter that was written by somebody 2,000 years ago to somebody else. Now on the surface of it, that's amazingly boring sounding. And yet, it's not just a book, it's God's book. It's got a treasure in it, the treasure of salvation. And Jesus said, the words that I speak are spirit and they are life. In John 6, and Moses said, take all these words to heart. For they are no empty words for you, but your very life. This verse also says something about evangelism. 
So often Christians look for some grand scheme by which we could communicate Christ to the world. My wife and I just this week went to uh, the movie theater and saw the, the video of the sight and sound production of Moses. And I don't want to uh, uh, criticize at all those who, who do that. And it's a magnificent show. And God can use that kind of thing, for sure. He can use spectacular things. But what ordinarily does God use to turn a person to Christ? It's ordinarily seeing hope in some ordinary person who has a life very much like mine. See, you know, seeing love in someone that looks a lot like me, but has something that's driving them that isn't in the person without Christ. In hearing an explanation of why they have this hope and why they have this love. That's what usually God uses. This verse also tells us a lot about other believers. They are just they are treasure-filled clay pots. It's easy to focus on their clay potness, isn't it? And forget that they possess a precious treasure. The most important thing about any Christian is that they have Christ. And the main reason Christ calls us over and over and over again to love one another, to pray for one another, to serve one another, to help one another, is because the other has Christ. But finally, this verse says a lot about our lives. So often human troubles and human struggles produce a grumbling and bitter spirit. But not so with us who know that we are clay pots with a treasure inside. The point of this verse is the great gap between the treasure and the clay pot. And that great gap that exists, you know, that where the, the treasure is on a completely different level than the clay pot, and yet they come together. That gap is supposed to be there. And it's supposed to show us that we are saved not by who we are, not by what we do, but by who comes to us. By the Christ who came into the world and comes into our lives. Amazingly, God's power is demonstrated most when our human weakness is also demonstrated. This reflects the main theme of this epistle. That God's power is made perfect in human weakness. Just as the glory of God was most perfectly manifested in the humanity of Christ, who took upon himself the weakness of a human body and triumphed by suffering on a cross, 
Surely it is fitting that the glory of God is manifested now in our weakness, not in our strength. Our very weakness becomes a fitting context for the proclamation of the good news of an incarnated, crucified Savior. At the end of this letter, Paul says, because of all this, I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. You see, we can be content in weakness, in insult, in hardship, in persecution and calamity. For when I am weak in myself, then the Lord can be strong in me. So when we feel feel weak, that's good. That's the way God wants it to be. He wants to show his mighty power by making his magnificent, priceless treasure radiate through my weak, ordinary life. Now, I don't know about you, but I don't like feeling weak. I like feeling strong. I like success. I don't like failure. I like people to think highly of me and be impressed by me and not look down at me or even feel sorry for me. But as time goes on, the Lord helps me let go of this life and this body and this world and realize that it's in the Lord that I find strength, in the Lord that I find my identity. The longer I live, the more impressed I am by my weakness and by God's strength. Though I relationally feel closer and closer to him, yet my view of myself gets lower and lower and my view of him gets higher and higher. It's not enough to recognize our own weakness. That just by itself just yields despair and discouragement and hopelessness. But recognizing that God's power is demonstrated most in our weakness, that yields hope and peace and confidence. James 1, 9 and 10, one of my favorite passages in the whole New Testament. Give us some help here. It says, let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation and the rich brother in his humiliation. Let the lowly and mistreated person boast in his exaltation. Let him remember that he possesses the greatest treasure of all. And let the popular, successful person remember that he is a mere clay pot. You see, God has given us this wonderful tool by which we can manage our emotional and psychological lives. 
It's so easy when you're successful and admired to give in to the sins of self-exaltation, self-satisfaction, self-centeredness, and self-sufficiency. And it's so easy when you fail and get rejected to give in to the sins of self-pity and self-condemnation and self-loathing and self-degradation. And so God gives us these two realities, the clay pot and the treasure. He gives us these two realities, the exaltation and the humiliation, so that we can navigate like a ship that has to sail between rocks on either side. So we can navigate between the rocks of discouragement on the one side and the rocks of self-assurance on the other side. Remembering that we're just clay pots helps us to avoid lofty self-thinking. And remembering that we possess God's great treasure in us helps us to avoid dark self-thinking. God wants us to have joy as long as the joy is experienced in light of our neediness. We don't forget our neediness in our joy. And God wants us to be humble as long as that humility exists in the context of the surpassing greatness of the power of the gospel which is at work within us. So what a blessing that God gives us these two things together. The knowledge that we are jars of clay and yet in spite of the fact that God has put his great treasure, his own son, to reside in that jar of clay that we might not just be a broken, empty jar that is discarded and forgotten, but we have an eternal purpose. Now each week we come and we remember the gift of Christ to us and what he did upon the cross, giving himself as a sacrifice for our sins. So it is fitting that, we, that the sermon comes to the table that we don't just leave it in our minds, but we come and we say, yes, in light of what you have said, Lord, we want to take you. We want you to be ours. We want to recognize that we are hungry and we need you, and so we feed upon you. Let us pray. Thank you, O Lord Jesus. Thank you that though we are lowly pots made of the earth, yet you have a marvelous, exalted purpose for us that we might contain the treasure of Christ. Now, Lord, as we take this which represents Christ into ourselves, that we might possess him ceremonially. We pray that 
we would possess him in our hearts. That he would reside in us and make his home in us. And that we would find our home in him. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.